Very good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you all, and Peter, it's especially lovely to see you this morning. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, with a prayer, and then we'll, we'll go into a time of worship, and then uh, have an opportunity to welcome Peter uh, at his first uh, morning with us to, to break bread and to drink wine. So we'll, we'll start with, with prayer and with worship, and then we'll go straight in, in, into welcoming Peter into our church. So if you all just bow your heads and stay seated. Great God in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful morning that you've given us. We thank you for Peter. We thank you that he was baptised here yesterday and we thank you for that joyful occasion. We look forward to, to sharing this, this special morning together with him. Father, we, we pray that you will bless our time it's so good to come together in this, this quiet place and to, to just focus our hearts and our minds completely on you. And so, Lord, please bless us and we welcome you into this, this service to be with us as we worship you and praise you this morning. Please hear this prayer in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to start with, with two, two songs of, of praise. The first, come let us worship the King of Kings and then if you stay standing, we'll sing God of Glory. Good morning everyone. It's the care news. <coughs> While I'm reading this, if you could think about those that we're talking about but also anything else that you want me to include in a prayer after this. So Sam is here but has an appointment this week, I understand, um, re regarding possible eye surgery. So we're, we pray and are concerned that that goes well for you, Sam. Derek, quite obviously, is recovering from some um, hand surgery. Um, I'm sure you will, uh, you will recover well. Pete Green has been particularly unwell this week and uh, it was compounded by the fact that he found himself unwell in a hotel in the Midlands and unable to get home. So he only came home yesterday, as I understand it. Some friends were able to bring him back and he's now um, being ill at his own home, which can only be a slight improvement. So um, really concerned that Pete does get better soon and let's take, take our love back to him, if you would. Gladys, as well, was not well enough to come yesterday or today. And so Joe says that we... Um, points out that we should uh, show our love and care for her and continue to pray for her as we do often. And we also think of Jack and Bill and Alan McGore as well and others who struggle with life's cares and also spiritual concerns too. Please continue to pray for John Bonani in the Demo Democratic Republic of Congo and the work that he continues to do while he's out there. And so that you can pass your news on, Alex and Kate will be providing the care news next week. Is there anything else that you want me to include in our pastoral prayer? So that's <coughs> Derek's son, Simon, who was uh, in hospital with swine flu and pneumonia, or suspected swine flu and pneumonia. So Ewald too has been very unwell this week by the sound of it, not, not, not fully recovered. Yeah. Okay, we'll con 
we'll continue to pray for Zoe. Zoe is uh, undergoing her fourth round of chemotherapy and is uh, is suffering quite badly um, emotionally as well as from the the uh, effects of the chemicals that are being pumped into her. So um, Zoe and Roy will think of who are down at Clevedon. If no one else has anything else, then if you just bow your heads, we'll offer a word of prayer together. Father, we have, in our way, brought a group of people in front of you. And I'm not going to repeat every name because nobody here needs me to. And because you certainly don't need me to because we know that they are in your care at all times, Father. And we thank you for that because they go out of our minds from time to time. And they go out of our reach from time to time. And sometimes we're just lazy. And sometimes we don't know how to support people. Sometimes we think other people are doing it. And sometimes there's just nothing we can do. So we thank you, Father, that in your care, all of these people can know that you're with them. But we pray for healing where healing is possible. And we pray for those that we've talked about today to know that they are in our thoughts and in our prayers and that they are in your care. However distant they are on another continent or just down the road from us here, we pray that our reach will not be too short for them, but that where we fail, your loving arms will enfold them. Where we've seen recovery this week, Father, we thank you. We thank you that the minutiae of our world matters to you in a way that we can't comprehend of a creator of this universe. But it matters so much that you wanted us desperately to know the love that you have for us, that you gave us your son Jesus. And we pray that you'll strengthen us in everything we do this week. For those here who have just experienced the waters of baptism and for those who have, are just about to. For those who spent many years coming here. And for those who find this place unusual and odd. Be with us all, Father. Care for us. Have concern for us. But most of all, keep us close to you and your lovely Son, Jesus. Amen. Um, we're going to sing again in a minute, but before we do, um, I'd just like to share um, a verse from one of our readings from the Psalms today. Um, this is from Psalm 55. The flowers are obscuring my, my verse. So this is Psalm 55 and verse 22. 
And this is a psalm of David, and David wrote this uh, in amongst all the, the battles that he fought, and, and with, with, with enemies um, seemingly all around him. And he says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And we're going to sing, O Righteous God, which just picks up on some of those things. Uh, verse 2 reads, O Lord my God, I take refuge in, me, in you. Save and deliver me from all my foes. My shield is God, the Lord most high. O Lord my God. Let's stand and sing, O Righteous God, together. Tony's going to be, be, be talking to us uh, about our, our readings from, from Romans. And we're going to, to, to read now um, from Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And Mike's going to read... Romans chapter 7 for us, and Sylvia is going to read Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Mike. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God for when we were controlled by the sinful nature the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit to death but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin is apart from the law. If I would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. And I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and I, through the commandment, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which 
is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me. Through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. But in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, <coughs> there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from this law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, 
if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Mark and Sylvia. One of the things that I, I love about, about Romans um, is that Paul, Paul gives us these, these fantastic and in-depth theological arguments that really underpin and form the basis of a lot of our spiritual understanding. But then, just woven in into all of this are these little verses that, that just sum everything up. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of those things that that would otherwise have have condemned us, they were nailed to the cross when when Jesus freely gave everything for us. And the burden of sin we no longer have because nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from from God's love. And that's because God's love is overflowing. Um, when, when the spear pierced Jesus' side when he was on the cross, the Bible tells us that blood and water flowed out. Um, and to me, that, that's a picture of God's free-flowing love for us from his only begotten Son. Uh, that blood and that water washing over us. And Peter, the, the water has cleansed you, the waters of baptism uh, and, and now it's time to remember the blood, the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed and the body that was broken for our redemption um, we're going to break bread and drink wine together now but before we do so we, we're going to sing a, a further song, that Jesus the Saviour from God you can stay, stay seated for this one and then afterwards Andrew is going to come and give, lead our thanks for the bread. Lord God, our Father, it's so wonderful that you see potential in all of us. For we all come here with all sorts of different things in our hearts and on our minds and cares and concerns and different situations. But they're all brought together in the one need we have, which is forgiveness. And they're all brought together, Lord, in the one thing you have for us, that is your grace and your love. And we thank you for that. As we take this bread now, it reminds us that there was one act, and that was of the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus, as a ransom for us.
to release us and to help us to be potentially someone like Jesus. So may that thought fill our hearts and fill our minds and our motives as we go on from this place. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. So bless this bread to us, Father, and particularly we rejoice in the fact that the gospel message still attracts people over 2,000 years since Jesus died. And it helps us to have this hope, this living hope. One day we believe soon he will return. And until he does, Father, fill us with your love and grace and compassion that we might shine for you and have the potential to be somebody like him. Amen. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the body of Christ. Steve's going to lead our thanks for the wine. Father, here we are. Here are your children before you, bowing down. Turn your ear to our prayer now, Father. Look upon us. Your eyes go into our minds and into our hearts. You go to the very core of who we are. You can see everything. Father, when you get to the centre of us, see that we know you to be our God. We believe in you. You are the only God. There is no other. You are mighty. You are powerful. We know you to be loving and faithful and compassionate. You're so caring. You are our God and you are worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you for this cup. A cup that you give to us to share. And as we share it, we proclaim the death of your Son. Boy, what a thing you did for us, Lord. As he hung there on the cross, and he breathed his last, you put a stamp on this world. And it called out, no, it shouted out to us, look at me, look what I've done for you. Lord, that shout cries on throughout eternity. Because it's your love that just pours out. It pours out from you and it pours through your Son. It flowed out of him and it flows into us. Lord, open our taps, break our dams, let our clouds of love rain upon everyone we meet. Don't hold us back, Lord. Father, fill us with your spirit to do what is right and good. Let us not shy away from you being our God, driving us forward. Lord Jesus, this is what your love has done to us. You lift us up. You take us out of that pit of death. You heal and restore us and you bring us closer to your Father. Help us embrace that. Father, 
hear our prayer. You are worthy to be praised. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, the blood of Christ. Tony is going to come and encourage us now. Good morning. I don't know why I've got a pen, it is written. I have a cousin who lives in Amersham, whose parents, or my auntie and uncle, died ten years ago. And uh, she, had a, she had a friend who lived up here who uh, agreed to tend the graves. And then her friend, I think, moved away and... and uh, Christine and I were talking, and uh, she was concerned about how this, how, who, how she would manage the tending of the grave. Uh, and in an overwhelming spirit of love and generosity, I volunteered to tend the grave, whatever that means. And so yesterday, I decided that I would go to Southern Cemetery, and I had a plot number G25 is where my auntie and uncle are buried. Have you ever tried to find a plot at Southern Cemetery? It isn't very straightforward. Well, actually, it's more straightforward now, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But as a result of having G25, there's a map at the front as you walk into Southern Cemetery which, uh, which shows you the various plots of which... I don't know, there must be 30. Plot G is just the other side of the East Chapel, so you wander in, take a right, follow the road round, and find the East Chapel, which is a bit hard to miss, frankly. But I've sort of forgotten which plot G was in relation to the chapel. So I'll just take a stab at this, this plot. There are no signs to say what plot it is. There are just large areas full of graves and I start to wander up and down up and down and up and down for a long time looking for the grave of my auntie and uncle I had the phone number for I guess they must have some sort of uh, reception type thing so for, I couldn't be bothered walking back to see if I'd missed anything so I rang them no answer and as I decided to give this up as a bad job and talk to Christian and say, where is it? I noticed that down uh, on the ground there was a dinky little, what looked like a dinky little headstone about so big, which had a G something on it. And as I looked around, there were more dinky little things with uh, G1000, G262. And as I looked on a different plot, there was I, whatever, 100, whatever. And I suddenly realised that each headstone had a little thing, number on the bottom. So oh, at least I know I'm in the right sort of area. So I'll, right, I've just got this one field to wander up and down looking for this headstone. But they were all three digits. There was no G25 at all. I must have been there, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes wandering up and down. Actually, I did eventually find it. It wasn't G25 at all. It was G825. But anyway, that's another story. But I found myself in a place which essentially 
was several fields full of the remains of dead people. And the inscriptions and the words and the shapes and the forms of all the various memorials that were there hearkened back to a life that was, that was no more. And that was very much the focus. It was, it was about the past. It was about things that had happened. As individuals, we often focus on things that have happened, things of the past, that can ultimately lead to death. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time in, in Romans 7 and 8. We, will not, we won't go to any other passages other than Romans 7 and 8. Paul, in these passages, tackles exactly this sort of mentality. The idea that if we focus on things of the past, if we focus on the things that are earthly, then the result is death. The, what we're taught here is, ultimately, I think, we need to focus on God. And I'm hoping that you'll, you'll see some of that as we, as we go through. So starting at Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Okay? So if you're alive, then the law has authority over you. And he gives an example of marriage. For example, uh, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now this is an, an analogy for our relationship with the law, which is important that we grasp. A wife, in this example, is bound to her husband under the laws of marriage for as long as the husband lives. And once the husband has died, the wife is no longer bound. She's free of that law. I was trying to think of other examples. If you're driving a car, for example, and then you swap to a bike, all, all, all the... All the all the skills and everything that you are bound to when driving a car, not relevant. Because it's something completely different. I was wondering whether me playing the piano was... Be, so if you stick a piece of music in front of me and I'm playing the piano and I'm playing the notes on the sheet, in my head I feel like I'm sort of bound by the dots on the page. And if you remove that music from in front of me, I am free to do whatever I want, good or bad. Romans 7, 4, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, 
to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. He's saying we died to the law because we now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as though we were married and our husband died. That binding no longer exists. We are now bound to Christ. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were work at work in our bodies, so that we both so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In his, and up to there, essentially, let's assume for the, for our sort of uh, the way we're going, this we throw the law away. We'll bring it back in in a minute. But for now, where we're up to, we were bound to the law. The Lord Jesus Christ came. There was a new way. And as a result of the new way, we were no longer bound to the law. The law was irrelevant, gone. It's as though the law died, we were married to the law, Lord Jesus came, we're married to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the analogy, that's the, almost the, the finality of it. Why is it important? I'll probably say this a few times as we go through. If you remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He loved the law. Pharisees loved the law. Some Pharisees loved the law so much that they would divide even the herds that they had. Can you imagine it? Your parsley, your dill, your sage, your thyme. I'll use this nine-tenths and this one-tenth. That can be for God. That's how much the Pharisees loved the law. Jesus confronted the Pharisees time and time again about the fact they'd lost their focus. Their religiosity was about the law. It wasn't about God. They'd created almost a new religion. And with that type of religion comes pressure and stress. And if we set these arbitrary standards that we cannot meet, then actually we create issues for ourselves. The other thing that we need to understand as we read and go through these passages, this is God's message to us through Paul. Do you know, God wants us to know and understand this. He wants us to understand the position of the law. He wants us to understand sin. He wants us to understand how we deal with the struggles that we face day in, day out, following the Lord Jesus Christ. So now Paul brings back in the law and validates it. So verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known that sin, what sin was except through the law, 
for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. How do you know what the temperature is without a thermometer? How do you know how far something away is without a ruler? The law's a meter in this sense, and without this meter of the law, we don't know what sin is. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that, every, that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The problem is that the combination of the law and man's sinful nature is what leads to death. It's not the law that is the issue. It is the fact that we have a sinful nature and it's that combination that causes us the issue. Verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. There are some nice verses there. I think number one we see that Paul is not perfect. He admits it. He is as fallible as you or I. And I suspect we can read all those, those verses there and we go, yeah, that's me. I wish I hadn't said that, but I did. I knew I shouldn't have done Or I wish I had done that, but I didn't. We can, we can empathise with this battle that, that Paul... Is, is going through. But what's interesting is he starts to separate things out here. It's actually, it's not really me that's doing it. It's my sinful nature that's doing it. Oh, cool. Might be a get-out clause here. Verse 21. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, 
I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now there is a definite separation here and two ways of looking at how we are made up. In my mind, verse 25, I am a slave to God's law in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And the two wage war. And I guess we all recognise within ourselves that fight we sometimes have to do the godly thing. And that's what's happening. That's what Paul is now writing about. He's talking about your inner being fighting the members of your body that are inherently sinful. I mean, you might not understand it in those terms, but you understand when you covet something or you want something or you're angry or whatever and you're telling yourself, I shouldn't be behaving like that. That's what's going on. That's what Paul's writing about. That's what God is talking to you about. Do you know, he understands the battle that we all go through. He understands the struggles that we face. Romans 8 verse 1 Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So you struggle and you do the things you oughtn't do and you don't do the things that you should do. And you have this battle in your, in your mind that you know you want to be godly and I guess at times, like, you stress about that and you worry about that and you feel adequate and you've let God down. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. 
It's not about what we do. The Pharisees, certainly some of the Pharisees, fell into that trap. And they had a list of laws. And they went down this list of laws and they went, did that, did that, did that, did that, did that, did that, I am fine. Unfortunately, they were not fine because their religion was about the law and it wasn't about God. And what Paul is telling us here is that we oughtn't stress about the times that we fail. We need to be focused on God. And if we're focused on the things of God, then our weaknesses will be taken care of. Verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. It's primarily about your focus in life. The mind of a sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. If we have given our lives to God, if we have committed ourselves, if we have invited the Lord Jesus Christ to live in our hearts, then we belong to God. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. So we didn't commit our lives to God to feel guilty or sad or unhappy or burdened. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. 
Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So where is our focus? Because to me that actually is the primary question. It's not about how do I stop doing this? How do I stop? How do I become less angry? How do I become, I don't know, a better dad? How do I become a, a better witness? You, you see the difference? It's, it's, it's about how do I be more Christ-like? It's not inward-looking, it's outward-looking. It's looking to God, it's developing a relationship to enable us to become more godly. It is hard sometimes for us to focus on the things of God. Because we're distracted by a whole host of things. Whatever it might be. They might be non-spiritual. They might be things of the world. They might be our jobs, money worries, illness. I don't know. You might be horrible. I might be horrible. You know, whatever it might be, you might not care about God. Doesn't You might be burdened by the fact you are a follower of God. You might be guilty continually. You might not do enough. You might not say the right things at the right time. I think this is what Paul is driving at. He's saying we need to focus on God. We need to be Christ-like. We need a mindset which is godly. Our minds need to be fixed on spiritual things. And that, that is what will lead us to be more Christ-like. Not, can I drive home at 30 miles an hour? Oh, I've done that today. Fantastic. What will happen tomorrow? But do I have enough care and respect for other road users that actually it's the right thing to do? Do you know, it's a broad, it's, I think it's a broader challenge than going through a things that I think might be wrong with me and ticking them off. It's about knowing about God. It's about knowing your Bibles and knowing what God's message to us through his word is. It's about spending time in prayer. It's about being spiritual with him and with your brothers and sisters. It's, fine being, it's about finding opportunity to be Christ-like where you are. Whether it be here, at home, at work, on holiday, out shopping. And in this way, we will become more Christ-like. And as we become more Christ-like, those fears and those deeds that potentially can drag us down, they'll disappear. Paul had a, I think, a real understanding just because of his heritage about the damage the law could do. He knew about the law. He was an expert. He knew the ins and outs of it. And for lots of his life, he'd lived it. And I guess, for lots of his life, he'd sat down and he'd divvied up his herbs. 
But I guarantee, when he wrote this letter, he wasn't giving up herbs. Because he was free from it. He was freed from the law. Not because the law was bad. The law was there so that we would be godly. The Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of the law. But the combination of the law and our infallibility meant that God had to send the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sent the Lord Jesus Christ because he loved us and he cares for us and he wants the best for us. He sent, he, he gave us the law so that we might be more wholesome, so that we would be Christ-like. God's not a killjoy. He understands the damage that sin can do to us. And therefore, as we finish this service, what do we take from it? I'd like us to take from it the fact that God doesn't condemn us. He knows we struggle. He knows that we will always struggle, that we will never be perfect, not on our own. He wants you to take that on board. He doesn't want you to burden yourself with that. He wants you to accept his love and his grace and his mercy and take that on board and in doing so, be more Christ-like so that other people will know the love that we know. Thank you, Tony. In his victory over the law, over sin, Jesus has changed Peter's life. He's changed Sarah's life. And he has set us all free. So let's, let's close our, our service by rejoicing in, in Jesus' victory over sin. We're going to sing two songs and then Martin's going to close in prayer for us. Lord God, you've reminded us through Tony that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet, Lord, often we're quick to condemn. We're quick to take offence and to bear grudges. <coughs> Lord, help us to take that that principle that that you've shared with us out into our lives and to be open and generous loving and forgiving Lord let us take that into our homes into our marriages, our families our friendships and our work relationships and our relationships here in this place too Lord bless us and strengthen us to be your people, shining with your love. And give us the strength we need, Lord. <coughs>